Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would continue to be with us as we look at a different portion of your word. Speak to us. Help move me aside so we can all hear what you have to say to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we looked at Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk had asked God a bunch of questions about the injustices that he saw around him. And God responded with the harsh words that he was going to allow the Babylonians to come and take them captive. Habakkuk again questions and wrestles with God's answer. And we finished last week with Habakkuk waiting for God's answer. So today we're going to start from chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord said to me, Write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. God spoke again. Write it down. Don't miss it. Don't get distracted. Don't forget it. Sometimes prophets would write their visions on large wooden tablets so everyone could read it, kind of like a large community bulletin board or like our big sign out front. God wanted the vision written clearly so those who read it could run. Now, there is a little bit of debate on how to interpret this. Does this mean that make it easily seen so as you are running by quickly, you will be able to read it? Does God want the one who reads it to run and tell others? Or does God want the one who reads it to run well in their journey, to have hope? No matter the full meaning, God wanted it put simply so that we would have understanding. But before God explained further, he encouraged, wait for it. I'm going to make it all okay. It's coming, but you're going to have to be patient. Now, if you've ever been pregnant, then you will understand waiting. Sorry, guys, I know this is kind of a woman illustration, but the last few weeks when you're pregnant seem like forever. I remember doing a lot of walking, trying different pressure points that are supposed to work, but there wasn't much I could do to speed things along. It was God's timing. Just like when I went into labor and then wanted it to stop, there was nothing I could do. It was God's timing. Matt was one of those come-really-quick kids. They pushed my legs together, said, breathe, your doctor's not here, we're going to have to get somebody from the emergency. Start to finish, three hours. It was all God's timing. Now, guys, maybe fishing would be a good example of waiting for you. I don't know. I've heard stories of those who have prayed for years and years for things like salvation of their family members, sometimes 10, 20, 40, 60 years until God answers their prayer. I love how God gets it that it's hard for us to wait and wants to encourage us. Now, I tried to work out some dates for you guys. Not everybody agrees, but this is what consensus seems to be. Habakkuk was written around 605. About eight years later was when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, 58 years until the Babylonians were defeated, and then they were in exile for around 70 years. So there was a little bit of waiting to do. Now the message takes an abrupt turn as God changes from pronouncing the destruction of Judah to the coming destruction of the Babylonians themselves. Verse 4 says, Look at the proud. They trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked. The NIV translated, 
See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Now, if you read commentaries, you will find that there is some debate over the correct translation and the difference between faith, faithfulness, and the faithfulness of God. While we're not going to get into all of that today, I think what they're all saying is a really similar thing. If I have faith, I will do something. It's going to change the way I live. I've got a little video for you to watch that maybe helps understand faith a bit more. Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of a tightrope, 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. His act would be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple crossing using a balancing pole. Then he would throw away the pole and amaze the onlookers. On one occasion, he crossed the tightrope on stilts. On another occasion, blindfolded. Another time, he stopped halfway to cook and eat an omelette. In 1860, a royal party from England came to watch Blondin perform. After his normal spectacular crossings, he then wheeled a wheelbarrow from one side to the other as the crowd cheered. Next, he put a sack of potatoes into the wheelbarrow and wheeled that across. The crowd cheered louder. Then he approached the royal party and asked the Duke of Newcastle, Do you believe that I could take a man across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? Yes, I do, said the Duke. Ah, hop in, replied Blondin. The crowd fell silent. But the Duke of Newcastle would not accept Blondin's challenge. Is there anyone else here who believes I could do it? Asked Blondin. No one was willing to volunteer. Eventually, an old woman stepped out of the crowd and climbed into the wheelbarrow. Blondin wheeled her all the way across and all the way back. The old woman was Blondin's mother, the only person willing to put her life in his hands. So faith is putting our life in Jesus' hands. It's good, right? Are you ready to get into that wheelbarrow? Are you ready to put your faith in Jesus' hands? One principle of interpreting scripture is to let scripture interpret scripture. In other words, when the meaning of a passage is confusing or unclear, go to other passages of the Bible to see if you can get some more insight from them. This verse is quoted in three different places in the Bible. When Paul quoted Habakkuk in Galatians and Romans, he emphasized that by faith a person is justified. The writer of Hebrews, on the other hand, stressed that by faith a person who's been justified will live. So let's look at Habakkuk 2, 4 in each of them. Reading from Hebrews chapter 10, starting at 35. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you? Be patient. Oh, sorry, patient endurance is what you need now, so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that has been promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. 
the writer of Hebrews was encouraging a life of faith in difficult times, even though it's because of the faith, uh, because of our faith, that we face persecution, jail, and sometimes even death. In both texts, we're encouraged to live based on who God says He is and what He has done and has promised to do. Now, Galatians three verse ten says, "But those who depend on the law to make them right." With God or under his curse, for the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says, It is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in scripture, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. Obeying the law wasn't enough. We need a relationship with Jesus for righteousness. What we believe and how we act are linked. If we are people of faith, we're going to live differently. We'll live faithfully. And faithfulness is living by faith. As we live in Christ, we will receive life by faith. Romans 1, 16, 17 says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. In other words, it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has already done for us which in turn changes everything that we do. So next we're going to move into the five woes, or as our version says, what sorrow awaits you. And although this is for the Babylonians, I think this is also a reminder for the people of Judah. Remember the first chapter? Things weren't going so well. They weren't following God and his commands. But I also see this as a song of hope. When they're taken into exile... I'm sure that these words were a comfort for them, a reminder that God wasn't finished, that this wouldn't last forever, that God would eventually destroy the Babylonians. They were to recite these words and be reminded of God's promise and be transformed from helpless victims to survivors, and not just survivors, hopeful survivors. Starting at verse 5. Wealth is treacherous. And the arrogant are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave, and like death they are never satisfied. In their greed they have gathered up many nations and swallowed many peoples. But soon their captives will taunt them. They will mock them, saying, What sorrow awaits you, thieves? Now you will get what you deserve. You've become rich by extortion, but how much longer can this go on? Suddenly your debtors will take action. They will turn on you and take all you have. 
while you stand trembling and helpless. Because you have plundered many nations, now all the survivors will plunder you. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly? You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. But by the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you, and the beams in the ceiling echo the complaint. What sorrow awaits you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption? Has not the Lord of heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations would turn to ashes? They worked so hard, but all in vain. Now, when I think of greed, I think of the Ten Commandments. I think of coveting your neighbor's wife, servant, donkey, iPhone. This gets at the root of all temptations. We live in a world full of greed. We are selfish, prideful, always wanting the next better thing. We need the next iPhone, the newest car, stylish clothes, better relationship, and a different job. And we're willing to go into debt to get those. Now, I'm not going to do a survey and ask everyone with a new iPhone to stand up and condemn you. That's not what this is about. But why do we want what we want? Why do we want what we want? Jesus stated that we would find our hearts where we find our treasure invested. And that's why he talked so much about money. He, Jesus, was ultimately after our hearts. Then in the middle of all these woes, there's kind of a timeout in verse 14. It reads, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These similar words are also used by the prophet Isaiah. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the midst of all the woes, God stops and declares that he's sovereign. It may seem like the Babylonians have all the power, But I am all-powerful. I am omnipotent. Let's keep going. Verse 15. What sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk? You force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink, and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment, and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forests of Lebanon, now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder through the countryside and filled the towns with violence. Well, obviously the Babylonians had a problem with alcohol. They used alcohol to take advantage of, compromise, and eventually humiliate their enemies. They were known for getting people drunk, and then stripping them naked. And they weren't the only ones who struggled with alcohol. Throughout the Bible, you will see God's warning for his own people. In Hosea, God said, Alcohol and prostitution have robbed my people of their brains. The Babylonians would strip the land they conquered, taking trees, animals, everything in sight. Scripture talks about the lushness of Lebanon. Psalm 104 talks about the cedars of Lebanon and refers to them as the trees of the Lord. In 539, Belshazzar threw a great party with lots of wine, free wine and lots of it. 
Remember the story, the writing on the wall, and Daniel comes to explain its meaning to the king? That night, King Darius the Mede, Daniel in the lion's den king, captured the city without much of a fight. The great Babylon fell because of its uncontrolled appetite for alcohol. Now, a little side note. Um, in the extra chapter of Daniel, it's part of the Apocrypha, not in our um, scripture, it talks about a little story about Habakkuk and Daniel, and I thought this was just a really interesting thing I had to share with you. So yes, I've, I digress a little. Um, Habakkuk is cooking stew, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Habakkuk, did you uh, know that Daniel is starving? He is in the lion's den in Babylon, and he really needs some food. And Habakkuk's like, I don't know about Daniel being in the lion's den in Babylon. They didn't have the internet like we do. So the angel of the Lord, it says, grabbed him by his head, by his hair, and brought him to the lion's den. And he gave Daniel some food and the angel of the Lord and brought him back. So little tidbit. Anyways, let's go back to our scripture. I grew up in the Salvation Army and as a child made a promise not to drink alcohol. When I was in grade four, my parents were appointed as pastors to the Alcohol Treatment Center here in Winnipeg. Um, It was called the Harbor Light, and it was down by the Manitoba Museum, kind of a rough area. The congregation would be those from the street as well as those in the treatment facility. They would come for services and then have lunch together. I remember seeing people stumbling around, throwing up, some extra happy, and some angry and escorted out. I also distinctly remember the smell as a child. (laughs) If you know me, you know smell is really important. Overall, it wasn't a bad experience, but a memorable one. The guys in treatment were awesome to us kids and had such amazing testimonies and joy. And we got donuts every Sunday, the yummy ones with sprinkles and whipped cream. (laughs) As members, and again as a pastor, I signed a covenant that I would refrain from all alcohol. As pastors, Jeff and I were assigned to the alcohol treatment facility in Toronto, so again I saw the devastation that comes from addiction and the joy of a life changed by Jesus. Alcohol in my family and the church was pretty much considered sin. When we left the Salvation Army to come to Elam, I remember the first time I joined a group of elders. It was actually at Doug and Jan's house. There was beer and wine. I know. And Christians were drinking it. And it it was really hard. It took a little bit for me to reconcile that. Now, let me just say that the Bible does not say it's wrong to drink. It says it's wrong to be drunk and out of control. It's wrong to let our appetites for more, our passions, be uncontrolled. Galatians 5, starting at verse 19, says... When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives, produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Unless our passion is in the will of God and for his glory and our craving is for the fruit of the Spirit, we too, like the Babylonians, will be destroyed by our uncontrolled appetites. Continuing in Habakkuk, What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, Wake up and save us. To speechless stone images you say, Rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. Now, when I think of idols, I think of the Bible. I think of ancient times. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. If you've seen Veggie Tales, the bunny, the bunny, oh, I love the bunny. Anyway, sorry. Um, I love it when things are connected. You think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were from Judah. The very people Habakkuk is talking to. They were there when the Babylonians came and invaded and took them into exile. But while most of us here don't have those wooden idols like they did in the Bible, we have lots of our own. An idol is anything that takes the place that rightfully belongs to God. We all worship worship something. It's either God or an idol. I saw a picture on my friend's Facebook the other day, Five Things to Quit. I think this is going to help us understand what we worship today. Trying to please everyone? Who must I please? Whose opinions count? Fearing change? Living in the past? Where do I find my security? My comfort? My pleasure? Or shelter? Putting yourself down? To what or whom do I look to tell me who I am and assign me my value. Overthinking, what demands my focus? See, we do have idols. I have idols. I find comfort in food instead of going to God. I have a desire to please others instead of getting my identity from God. Now, the Israelites didn't usually totally replace God. They just added other gods. They wanted to cover their bases. They wanted good weather for their crops. In Athens, in Athens, Paul talks about the unknown God. That was just in case they missed one. I think we kind of do the same thing. We have God in our lives, but we also worship other things. We worship success and security. We put God first, but these things are still there. He doesn't just want to be first on our list. He wants to be central. How faithful are we to God? How much of our focus and affection is placed on God? 30%? 60%? 90%? As a married woman, 90% faithful isn't good enough for me. And it's not okay for God either. It's all or nothing. This chapter finishes with, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. At the end of the section of woes and judgment, God declares he's on the throne. Habakkuk came to the end of his questions and complaints to find God's presence. After we have run out of words to complain and question, 
we find, the, we find that silence gives us the greatest answer. God is in his temple. God is on the throne. So what do we do with all this? Do you have faith today? Are you willing to get into the wheelbarrow? Do you trust God? Who or what are you worshiping? Are you 100% faithful to God? Or is he one of your top five? God had responded to, though not thoroughly answered, all of Habakkuk's questions. He moved them from victim to hopeful survivor. The bottom line is, faith will sustain the righteous, the wicked will get what's coming to them, and we can trust God because God is on his throne. In Hebrew, the word translated silent can be pronounced hush. When God speaks... There is nothing left for us to do but fall down and worship him. Let's pray together. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's take a few minutes to be silent before God today. Today isn't about us checking off the boxes and doing the right things for you. It's about recognizing what you have already done. You sent Jesus for us. You love us so much and want our hearts. You want us to love you 100%. Help us to trust you and to get into that wheelbarrow. Help us to truly worship you today and always. In your name we pray. Amen.